Hi everybody, uh, welcome to the first episode, my apologies for the difference in quality of this opening. I just wanted to say I got the contact information completely wrong at the end of the episode. So if you want to contact us, our email is popcornteethpodcast at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter at popcornteethpod. So that's pop- excuse me that's popcorn teeth podcast at gmail.com and at popcorn teeth pod on twitter not what i said at the end of the episode <laughs> that was not that it's incorrect information aside from at trevor tranter you can follow me okay uh thanks enjoy the episode Content warning. The film discussed in today's episode features scenes of extreme violence, including sexual assault. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Listen, you insignificant, wretched nothings. You are here solely for our pleasure. Expect none of the kindness you knew in the outside world like liberty or the ridiculous idea of showing pity to others. In our world, our will is the only legality. No one on this earth knows that you are here. As far as the world is concerned, you are already dead. And these are the laws that will regulate your lives henceforth. Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Popcorn Teeth. I'm your host, Trevor. Join me each episode as I share my thoughts on a different film. This week I'm covering Pier Paolo Pasolini's 1975 film Sallow or The 120 Days of Sodom. We'll go through some background information, a summary, and then I'll share some of my thoughts and close out the episode with a reading of my essay, Sallow as Oppressive Art. So some background info. Uh... Pier Paolo Pasolini was a visual artist, intellectual poet, novelist, and of course filmmaker. He was born on March 5, 1922 in Bologna, Italy to an army officer and a school teacher. He was educated at various places in northern Italy as his family traveled for his father's work. He was an avid reader and eventually studied art history and literature at the University of Bologna. For a time he lived in poverty among the Friuli people and his brother was murdered by fascists. He identified as a Catholic communist and was gay, uh, Pasolini did. He was also secretary of the Casarsa cell of the Italian Communist Party, but was charged with corrupting minors soon after that. Uh, Pasolini was brutally murdered and found dead on November 2nd, 1975, uh, after Salo was made, but before it was released. A little select filmography of Pasolini's. He made films such as Acatone, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, uh, Oedipus Rex, Theorema, or Theorem, and the Trilogy of Life, which included The Decameron, The Canterbury Tales, and A Thousand and One Nights, or Arabian Nights. The Trilogy of Life was a celebration of earthiness and sexuality, and Pasolini intended to follow it with the trilogy of death, and Sallow was supposed to be the first installment of that. 
Sallow was a rejection of the previous celebration. Pasolini felt that society had changed so much for the worse that it was impossible to return to such times of youthful exuberance and innocence. So that's sort of the point of view of Pasolini. That's sort of what, where he was coming from. Now, I'll give a summary. It's going to be kind of long, kind of detailed, because I um, I want to make explicit the content of the film. That way you can judge for yourself whether or not you want to see it. I th- It's an assaulting film. It's very much, it hits you. It's. I'd say if you really want to appreciate it, you should watch it more than once, which is a big ask, because it's hard to watch. It is. Uh, but I think it has a lot to say. And it, it's really, um, in terms of how it works as a film, which I kind of talk about in my essay, how it affects an audience, how it uses its position of power to comment on power. Because it, it's a movie about power. It's all about power. And that is kind of, I don't know, some initial thoughts, I guess. I'll get into my summary. So Salo occurs in fascist-occupied northern Italy from 1944 to 1945. The basic scenario is that four fascist libertines kidnap a group of teenagers and torture them for 120 days. That's so that from that description right away you probably know maybe maybe like yeah this, I'll watch it or no maybe this movie's not for me. The film is split into four parts, inspired by the structure of Dante's Inferno in his Divine Comedy. These are the Antichamber to Hell, or Anti-Inferno, and three circles of Hell. The Circle of Manias, or Obsessions, the Circle of Shit, and the Circle of Blood. Now, the content of the film is loosely based on the Marquis de Sade's unfinished work, The 120 Days of Sodom. Character-wise, we have, and there's a lot of characters in this movie, uh, what's interesting about the characters, I guess, before I go into the list, um, yes, they have names, but they don't have arcs. Uh, they, um, they're almost tr- like they're treated as just bodies in a way, which I think is obviously the movie saying something <laughs> about the society we live in and society under fascism and the view of the body as commodity. Uh, versus, you know, what most movies make you want to think about when you see people as people, as characters, as three-dimensional, as having wants and motivations. These people are just forced into a situation and tortured. So we have the four libertines, uh, who are the president, a magistrate, a duke, and a bishop. Four women, who are revealed to be three prostitutes or storytellers, and one musician, uh, four young men in uniform who are the collaborators who were also kidnapped. Uh, the four libertines' daughters. Four studs or cockmongers who were chosen specifically for their large penises. Eight male victims. There were originally nine, but one was killed trying to escape. Eight female victims. Also was nine, but one was killed. And a group of servants with a focus on a young black woman. So Anti-Inferno introduces the audience to all these characters and the world of the film. The collaborators, daughters, and victims are kidnapped, inspected, and brought to an estate where they are explained the schedule and rules of the following 120 days. 
The rules include punishment by loss of limb if teens are caught having consensual sex with each other, and punishment by death if caught making any reference to religion. The schedule includes storytelling sessions in the orgy room and actual orgies following dinner. That's the that's anti-inferno. That's the anti-chamber. That's the opening to the movie. So they lay out that it's going to be a rough go to the characters and the audience. Because if there's one thing these characters are, it's pretty honest. They just say what they are feeling and thinking. The four libertines specifically. The rest of the people don't really get the opportunity to speak much. Uh, or at least not share their points of view. They're just there to tell stories or be abused. Uh, so now we have the circle of manias. The storytelling and abuse begin. One of the prostitutes tells the story of being sexually abused as a child, which is meant to titillate the libertines, and it does. At dinner, one of the studs... Oh my god, this is... <laughs> even just explaining it is such a... Okay, sorry guys. Um... At dinner, one of the studs rapes a daughter before the president presents his ass to everybody, and then to the stud who proceeds to have sex with the president. They all sing on the Parati Bridge, then a masturbation lesson follows. After this, the ninth teen girl, who previously tried to run away, is found with her throat slit. So that was the, the ninth girl who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Signora Vacari tells another story, which inspires the four libertines to test the sexual maturity of two teens. After the test, the two teens are married in a mostly nude wedding ceremony, and they almost have sex but are stopped by the libertines, who say that it is them who get to have sex with the teens. They do so, and the magistrate approaches the duke and has sex with him from behind while the duke is abusing it's awful. Then there's the scene of the four libertines and they're just drinking and discussing philosophy. And then another story and a horrible interruption by the bishop uh, when he forces a girl to the bathroom and makes her pee. Well, he also pees. After this, oh my god, the teens and daughters are walked around like dogs, naked, and they're fed scraps of food. The magistrate whips one boy who refuses to eat before he then feeds a girl a piece of cake with nails in it. Then we get another little story before a title card tells us we're now in the circle of shit. So we'll stop here for a minute. Huh. <laughs> the film heightens. The film is a, is a, it's a, it's a staircase. It's like, just heads up, it doesn't get, it doesn't get better in this movie. It, it, it just gets worse. So, anyway, back to this catalog of atrocities, which is what this movie is, in many ways. Is it more than that? I think so. But it's all, it is also that. <laughs> it can be both. Um, so, The Circle of Shit. A new prostitute slash storyteller looks out a window while a plane can be heard overhead. She then joins the orgy room and tells a story. And during that, she and the Duke um, discuss killing their mothers, which upsets one girl whose mother drowned trying to save her from the fascists. 
her crying prompts the Duke to have the cl- collaborators strip her, and the Duke defecates on the floor before forcing the girl to eat it. And the president leaves to masturbate in the bathroom. Yeah, the four libertines talk about the example of the story. They decide to follow it. The president inspects the chamber pots of the girls. He gets mad at one for having gone to the bathroom. He adds her name to a black book, which is where the fascists have been noting the names of the teens who've broken the rules. The president then inspects the boys and scolds one not only for having gone to the bathroom, but also for wiping afterward. The boy who was previously married is brought into the room by Signora Bacari, and he's wearing a wedding dress. So the next scene we get is a very famous scene in which everyone engages in a mass act of coprophilia, that is, eating feces. This is like it's served on these big, beautiful dining trays, and it's there's just close-ups of people picking at it with <laughs> spoons and eating it, and it's all over their teeth and their faces, and they're gagging. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. It's extremely effective. The magistrate also force-feeds the boy bride before a brief scene on the stairs right after dinner where he breathes his breath in the boy's uh, tear-streaked face. So then we have another storytelling scene in which the prostitute and the bishop dance, and the duke takes a girl to the bathroom and forces her to urinate on his face. The libertines then decide to hold a competition where they're going to judge the teen's uh, butts, and the winner is to be executed. So they're organized in a naked, huddled mass with towels over their heads. The libertines inspect them and choose one uh, boy as a winner. And they put a gun to his head and pull the trigger, but it's revealed to be empty. And the bishop says they intend to kill him many times, not just once. We get another brief story before our final circle. You ready? (laughs) Here we go. The Circle of Blood. So three of the Libertines, the President, the Duke, and the Magistrate, uh, are all dressed as women. They're like old Italian church ladies, is what they're dressed up uh, like in their Sunday best, probably for a wedding, uh, as you would for a wedding, and it turns out it is for a wedding. So they, they join the bishop, who's wearing an elaborate and very strange ceremonial <laughs> get-up. And the first thing they do, these three libertines dressed as ladies, is they scream at the teens for not being happy since this is a wedding. This is supposed to be a happy a happy time, a happy ceremony. Uh, so the musician who has been playing piano, scoring all the stories uh, that were being told so far, she has an accordion. She puts that down. She and Vicari perform a brief little sketch, and the teens start to smile before the musician starts weeping. Uh, Vicari decides to imitate her, mocking her, and then both burst out laughing. The musician goes back to her accordion and scores the wedding ceremony, where the libertines marry their studs. Uh, The next scene, the bishop and his stud have rough sex, and the bishop leaves to check on the teens. And the following sequence features the teens ratting on each other for breaking the rules. The last person sold out is Ezio, the collaborator who is caught having sex with the black servant. He holds his hand up in a defiant socialist fist before the four libertines, after a moment of shock, uh, riddle him with bullets and then kill the servant. In the next scene, the libertines award blue ribbons to those who will be punished. 
and those with blue ribbons, which that being most of the teens, are sat in the bathroom, and some in a huge vat of feces, while the final prostitute tells her story. And one of the daughters screams to God, asking why he's abandoned them. And the following sequence is the finale. Grand finale, guys. Sorry, here it comes. So it starts with the Duke sitting at a window, and he's watching through binoculars as the torture begins. The audience watches through his point of view as the president burns one boy's genitals and another girl's breast with a candle. Uh, the musician leaves her piano, goes to a window. We see a shot of her seeing something off in the distance, something clearly awful, presumably the torture. And she decides to kill herself and jumps out the window to her death. The Duke keeps watching while the president cuts one boy's tongue out, which prompts the Duke to grab the penis of one of the collaborators who is standing by. Two other collaborators uh, rape a girl and then hang her, and the Duke watches that through reverse binoculars, so you can see everything. Also, I think a way for them to cut to using a dummy, and it would look more real. That's just like the... I don't know, technical aspect of, like, selling the reality of the film, I guess. Now we have the president watching from the window with his binoculars as the magistrate uh, cuts a boy's eye out. And the president decides to tell a joke to one of the collaborators before he watches the studs demonstrate a strangling machine. Then the girl is scalped. And next we have the magistrate watching as the bishop screams and whips the teens. The president, duke, and bishop then all dance in a can-can line. Like, they're having a great time. And the bishop then burns one boy's uh, nipples and chest with a brand. Before Claudio, one of the collaborators who is up in the estate where the viewing is happening, uh, changes the radio to a jazz song before he and another collaborator decide to dance together. One asks the other's girlfriend's name, and he says, Margarita. And with that, the film ends with its final fine title card. I know. And I asked you to watch it twice. <laughs> but, um, you know, you... you the reason I went so detailed is I wanted to make sure you understood the content. Like I said, so you don't walk into this movie and go, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, I know I put a content warning at the beginning, but I just wanted to talk about it now. Like I said, it's an assaulting film. It's also extremely well shot, which makes it almost that much more disturbing uh, versus something like, I don't know, which relies on a, a lower quality to maybe obfuscate some of the scenes. This is... Sallow is um, well-designed. That's a good word for it. I think it's an extremely designed film. Um, they say... It was made in the editing room, and <laughs> when they were making it, they didn't realize quite how dark of a movie they were making. So it's designed and deliberate. 
So now I'm going to get into my essay, and hopefully that provided a base. So that way, if you haven't watched the movie and you don't want to watch the movie, you don't have to. You know what happens. That is what happens. That is how it happens. Uh, I'll refer to the narrative a bit in my essay, but that that's the gist, you guys. So, um, okay. Sallow as oppressive art. There's a couple of repeats of info, so bear with me. Pier Pasolini's Sallow, or The 120 Days of Sodom, is a film that explores power, particularly the ability and inclination of those in power to exploit and oppress the powerless. In doing so, Sallow itself exercises a great deal of power over its audience. I will argue that Sallow, in its exercise of this power, is an oppressive film. First, Pasolini deliberately subverts filmic narrative convention to unease his audience. Pasolini's film loosely follows the events of the Marquis de Sade's The 120 Days of Sodom and the structure of Dante's Inferno, being separated into an antechamber, anti-inferno, and three circles of hell, the circle of manias, circle of shit, and circle of blood. To summarize what story there is, Sallow features four fascists kidnapping a group of teenagers for 120 days of torture. Rather than progress as a traditional film narrative, in which characters' psychological journeys run parallel to the plot, creating arcs in the sense of growth and closure, Sallow unfurls like the roll of paper which held Desaad's original manuscript. It is a constant and consistent revelation of increasingly disturbing vignettes. As the content heightens and the sadism becomes more complex, the film simply, and as a reel, literally, unrolls at an even pace. Is a visual dirge trudging forward slowly and evenly towards death. Despite the lack of a traditional story, the world of the film itself does have a logic. It has very regimented rules laid out at its beginning which provide the film's internal system of cause and effect. The causality in this film is rule-based, not narrative, making it feel that much more restrictive. Further, Sallow understands its mode of presentation. Projection. It uses the oppressive power of the cinema screen to further upset its audience. The idea of a film with its massive images being projected via light in front of an audience seated tiny in the dark is oppressive. Pasolini recognizes the power of the physically large image to overwhelm an audience and pushes it to the limit, making the content as overpowering as the projected image itself. The film's form therefore follows. Close-ups of feces, lingering shots of teenage genitalia, and long takes of brutality all take full advantage of their being projected on the big screen to disturb the audience. Sallow even uses its power to exercise a perverse mercy. Pasolini, for instance, gives the audience a brief and cruelly minor reprieve from the filmic assault during the first coprophilia scene. In it, the Duke forces a girl to eat his feces with a spoon as punishment for crying about her dead mother. Pasolini takes this image and presents it to the audience out of focus. Rather than keep the action in focus, the camera focuses on the table in the foreground while a blurry teenager gags in the background. This minimal obfuscation provides a tiny sense of relief in the audience, but since it is arguably the most extreme moment of the film thus far, it's cold comfort. In fact, it registers as deeply disconcerting that relief, even if it is just staving off nausea, is still tied to an image of cruelty and disgust. The audience thus feels good that they cannot see the act in focus, but bad because the act is still occurring. To feel any sense of relief while watching someone forced to eat feces stirs discomfort in the audience because it is contradictory. Also, I've noticed that Pasolini inextricably ties relief to punishment, and he indeed punishes the audience for taking even the briefest of breaks. 
This linking of relief to punishment is explored in the film itself during its most traditionally narrative sequence. The selling out sequence in which one after another the teens reveal each other's transgressions of the rules to the bishop in an effort to save themselves. Again, relief, indeed rescue, is linked to punishment, in this case the punishment of others. Salo's ultimate act of oppression and control occurs during its finale. In it, Pasolini not only makes the viewer complicit in the film's most violent acts, but he makes those acts inescapable. He uses a mat to physically limit the audience's scope to detailed close-ups of extreme violence. These provide the point of view of the fascist binoculars. Pasolini does again provide a break, but it is again a perverse respite. The Duke gleefully flips around his binoculars to take in the entirety of the image before him. This is presented as an extreme long shot which provides space between the violence and the audience. However, in doing so, the audience must take in the totality of the brutality. Rather than watch snippets of individual violence, this shot provides us with a full overview of the carnage. The individual acts of violence are shown to be part of a larger system under fascism, and we, as viewers, have been complicit in it. This sequence further disturbs the audience by, again, subverting traditional cinematic conventions. Cinema normally allows the audience to engage in scopophilia, taking pleasure in looking, often through spectacle. In Sallow, the scopophilia occurs within the world of the film itself. The horrific spectacle is viewed and enjoyed by the fascists. This presentation of such a cruel act of scopophilia serves to scorn the act of viewing itself and, again, punishes the audience for their having watched such a violent film. Shallow, in its exercise of power over its audience, is truly an example of oppressive art. And that's it for this week's episode of Popcorn Teeth. I hope you enjoyed, or maybe enjoyed is the wrong word when talking about Shallow, but I hope maybe you appreciate, you appreciated uh, this episode. If you want to write in, you can email uh, popcorn.teeth at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, subscribe and leave a review, please. Also, you can follow Popcorn Teeth on Twitter at Popcorn Teeth and myself at Trevor Tranter. So until next time, keep uh, fighting fascism.